Good morning. If you have your electronic device or Bible, you see how contemporary I'm getting? Turn into your Bibles to Luke 20, 27 to 40. I don't need to say that at the traditions hour, but 8 o'clock is now catching up to uh, 10.30. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, uh, this is an awesome thing to imagine what it would be like when you call us home to glory, we who know your son Jesus as personal Savior. Father, it's uh, a bit stunning when we read your word to see how adamant it is about the afterlife and yet how little is actually written of detail. But Father, what is written, we want to mine and we want to have it come to our minds and we ask that you would allow us to biblically imagine what heaven is like. Guide our time, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. It is an amazing thing that as you look at Scripture, over and over again it talks about heaven, but it rarely tells us much about it's what it is like. I think the reason might be because it's not like here, and the Bible has to accommodate what is beyond human experience with human words. How do you describe something that is so beyond what any of us can imagine using the limitation of human words? I think Peter encapsulates it best in 1 Peter 2 where he essentially says it's not like here. That's what heaven is. It's not like here. It's so much better. I want to start this morning with uh, a very well-traveled account. Uh, you probably heard it many times. You'll know the punchline before I give it, but it's the best I got. So go ahead and groan. Peter and Tony were talking about heaven, and they were baseball fans, and Peter asked Tony, you think there's baseball in heaven? And Tony said, I don't know, no idea. And then the next day, Tony died. A few months later, in this fictitious story, Jesus allowed Tony to call back to earth to talk to Peter. And immediately, Peter wanted to know, is there baseball in heaven? And his friend said, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is there's baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're pitching tomorrow. I know. Groan all you want. Actually, it would be great news. Because the moment you get to heaven, you're in the presence of Jesus. And you're in the place prepared not with human hands. It is beyond imagination. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4... That when a believer in Christ dies, we grieve. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as assurance. We grieve with confidence. 
We grieve for ourselves, for our own loss. But we never grieve for the one who has gone before us because they are in a place that is infinitely better than anything we could ever imagine. A second account I want to tell is a true one. It's out of the life of Billy Graham, who has now gone to be with the Lord in heaven. Early in his preaching career, Billy Graham was in a small town that he had never visited before. He wasn't sure of the geography, and he had written a postcard to his wife, Ruth. And he wanted the postcard to be mailed, but he had no idea where the post office was. And so he saw a young boy on the streets, and he he flagged the boy down, and he said, Son, can you tell me where the post office is? And the young guy gave him directions. And then Billy Graham pointed to the church. He said, Son... I want you to come tonight to that church and I'm going to give you and everybody else directions on how to get to heaven. And the young boy shrugged his his arms and shoulders and said, I won't be there. You can't even find the post office. There's no way I'm getting directions from you. Actually happened to Billy Graham. But of course, Billy knows how to get to heaven. He knows that God and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, fully God, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and then died as a payment of sin. Not his own, he had no sin, he died for our sin, that if by faith we would believe in Christ, and we would accept his death as a payment of our sin, and his righteousness would be imputed to us as we believe in Christ, and our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. He paid the penalty that if we would believe in him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. Today, Jesus is going to talk about eternal life. He's going to talk a little bit about heaven. I want to pick up in our text in Luke 20. I want to read verses 27 all the way to 40. There came to him, Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, this is actually a leveret marriage out of Deuteronomy 25, if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, remember the Sadducees don't believe it. They don't believe in a resurrection, so this is a mockery of Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. So he's going to Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. That's the consuming of the bush that does not consume. We call it the fiery bush. 
but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes, first it was the Sadducees, now it's the scribes, for some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. As you and I begin, I want to take a few moments. Sometimes when we read the text, we come across these religious groups, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. Now the Pharisees aren't exactly in this text, but they're all over the gospel. And these three groups are different one from another. Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. So we're going to take a moment to unpack what these three groups are like. We'll start with the Pharisees because they're most readily found in the Gospels. In the time of Christ, there were between 3,000 and 6,000 Pharisees, a word that means separated one. These are lay leaders who have separated themselves from the populace. They have this sense that the populace is not good enough to earn their way to heaven. They were right about that. Nobody is good enough to earn their way to heaven. But the Pharisees tried. In fact, they constructed a number of additional laws. Now, in the Old Testament, God gives us 613 laws. I say, whoa, that's a lot of laws. They say, what a lightweight. We need more of them. And so they offered several tens of thousands of additional laws. They were called the oral traditions, and they were passed orally from person to person until 180 AD when Rabbi Judah ben Hanasi redacted them and wrote them down. And these laws are a fence around God's law. God's law in the middle, they had these other laws to make sure if you kept all these other laws, you would never break God's law. They were quite hair-splitting laws. For instance, they tell us how to wash our hands in a tractate called Netalat Yadayim, how to wash our hands, 35 rules on how to wash our hands, nothing to do with hygiene, everything to do with ceremonially cleansing, 35 of these rules. They tell us how to wash our pans in a kosher manner. Many, many rules. They're worried about working on the Sabbat from sunup Friday to sunup Saturday, or sundown Saturday, uh, sundown and sundown, I got it wrong. They're worried about the Sabbat, so they tell us how far we can walk on the Sabbath. It's actually 0.596 miles. So Hasidic Jews today count how many steps they take because you cannot walk more than 0.596 miles. Now, there's a way around that with certain wires that are strung in major cities like New York and Los Angeles, and that wire, the whole length, is counted as one step. We have these wires even today, but you get 0.596 miles. Don't go strolling from sundown to sundown, Friday to Saturday. Lots and lots and lots of these rules. They tell us how often we ought to fast. In the Old Testament, fasting was required one time a year on Yom Kippur, 
the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. You can fast more than that, especially when you're asking God to give you wisdom in a certain direction, but you're only required to fast one time. They added every Tuesday and every Thursday, so you fasted a minimum of 105 days a year. This is how they built a hedge, the oral traditions, around God's law. They were separatists. They wanted to earn their way to heaven and didn't think the average person could do it. They were right about that. Even the unaverage person can't work their way or earn their way to heaven. Pharisees were also nationalists. They were fiercely loyal to their country. They hated Rome. They wanted Rome driven out. In today's parlay, they might wear a baseball cap that said, Make Israel great. And that's not a political statement on my part. That's just the way they would have handled life. So that's the Pharisees. The second group is the scribes. They're found in verse 40 at the end of our text. They're not lay leaders. They're vocational leaders. They're paid for what they do. Many of the scribes are priests. They preach. They teach. They also transcribe the word of God And they make additional copies of the word of God. Many of the scribes are members of what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the 70 Jewish rulers who rule over Israel, but they are under rulers because Rome is in control. That is the scribes. That is the Sanhedrin. The third group, the one that dominates today's text, These are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, many of them, are also priests. In fact, the high priest, and remember we have two, you're only allowed one, but we have Annas and Caiaphas because Rome sacked Annas and appointed his son-in-law Caiaphas. We have two high priests. They are always Sadducees. Sadducees do not believe in life after earthly life. They don't believe in the resurrection. Sadducees are moralists. They search God's word for moral rules and regulations to govern one's life. These Sadducees are interested in money, materialism. They're interested in possessions, and they're interested in having people obey them. These are not individuals. We would expect them to pursue God and to encourage others to pursue God. That was true of priests at certain points in Israel's history. It is not true at this point. The Sadducees do not pursue God. They don't call people to pursue God. They call people to obey the moral laws. And so they only believe in five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in their opinion, they're wrong. But in their opinion, in those five books, you will never find the resurrection from this life into the life to come. These individuals are accommodating to Rome. Listen to what Caiaphas says about Jesus. This is in John chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, this is the high priest. If we let Jesus go on like this, Everyone will believe in him. And what's the concern? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their concern is not that Jesus is teaching something. 
that contradicts what they believe. They're not really concerned about dogma or theology or what the Bible says. Their concern is that they could lose their place. They could lose their status. They could lose their authority. They accommodated to Rome. It's not that they liked Rome, but they accommodated to Rome because Rome allowed them to have lots and lots of power. We know something interesting about the Sadducees because of something called the Wall, W-O-H-L, Museum. It's also called the House of Katras, which is the uh, name of the priestly family. It's also called the Burnt House. You remember in AD 70, Rome set all of Jerusalem on fire and the city burned. Well, that was true of everything in the city and around the city, but some of the ruins still managed to survive. One of them is this priestly, high priestly family, the House of Katras. It, it managed to largely survive. And because of that, we discovered that the Sanhedrin lived in a gated community. Only themselves were allowed in the gated community. They were aristocratic, materialistic. They were of the highest strata, and that's what they concerned themselves. They concerned themselves with materialism. And Jesus is quite upset with this group. The Sadducees are materialists, and more than anything else, they're moralists. The first five books tell us how to morally live, and you ought to do that, not to please God, but because it's the right way to live. In this regard, the Sadducees are just like our third president, Thomas Jefferson. While many of the early leaders of our country clearly were Christians and the Puritans were concerned with loving God and honoring God and loving his word, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. There's a small group of deists among the colonies. He's one of them. He believed not in the living God, but he believed in the moral laws. As a deist, he wasn't sure if God existed or didn't exist, but he was very concerned that the laws of the Bible become the laws of the land. And so if you know anything about Thomas Jefferson, you know that he made his own canon of Scripture. He cut everything supernatural, everything miraculous out of the Bible, and he created a Bible with just the laws of God. That's exactly what the Sadducees are like. They're moralists. Now, it's these Sadducees that teach that nowhere in the Bible, remember they only have five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, nowhere in the Bible is the resurrection, life after this life, found. And in order to prove the point, they do a silly illustration to Jesus. We might call it, Reductio ad absurdum. That is, they, they give an illustration that is absolutely absurd to underscore the point that there is no life after this life. So they create this woman. We might call her the woman of death. You marry her, you end up in a pine box. You don't want to marry this gal. So a brother marries her, and he kicks the bucket. The grim reaper comes. His brother then marries her, because remember, we have leveret marriages. A leveret marriage, as taught in the Old Testament, goes like this. 
if a man marries a woman and dies before he has sired a male offspring, then his brother must marry the widow because it's very important to have a male offspring. Now, leveret marriages are for multiple purposes. One purpose of a leveret marriage is there's no respectable job for a widow. She needs to be married in order to survive. A second reason you need a male offspring is that's the way the family name is carried. A third reason is that the land that has been in your family for centuries only is passed from male to male to male. So if you die without a male offspring, the widow doesn't get the land. In fact, the land can go to somebody outside of your family, outside of your clan. And so the leveret marriages protected the widow, protected the name, protected the land. And so they give us this reductio ad absurdum, this ridiculous argument. And they say, this, this man marries a woman, he dies. His brother marries her, he dies. His brother marries her, he dies. We got seven brothers, and they all die. And the question is, when she gets to heaven, when she dies, whose wife is she? I'm willing to bet that the guys all say, no thanks. For, forget it. Even in heaven, I'm not taking chances. But the Sadducees give this ridiculous scenario because they're trying to undermine the fact that there is no life after life. They've thrown the gauntlet down, but they're challenging Jesus, not the right guy to challenge. And from this, Jesus then gives us some insights into heaven. The first insight actually comes from the parallel passage in Matthew 22, verse 29, let me read it. But Jesus answered the Sadducees, You are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. What do Sadducees do? They deny the supernatural. And they haven't spent a lot of time in the Word of God because they're materialists. What Jesus says to them is you guys are supposed to be teachers of the law. You're supposed to be teachers of the word. You're supposed to be teachers in a life group or in word, women of real devotion, or a men's Bible study, or in young adults, or, or name the Bible study that you're a part of. You're supposed to be teaching these things. But you Sadducees have spent all of your time chasing after that which perishes. You've spent your entire life chasing after things and possessions and power, things that perish, and you haven't invested in things that are eternal. You should have. That's what Jesus says to the Sadducees. In fact, although not yet written, I suspect that had it been written, Jesus would have cited James 3.1. Let not many of you presume to be teachers, my brethren, for do you not know that we who teach will incur a stricter judgment? These individuals were entrusted to teach the people of Israel, about God. As priests, they should have been calling people to God, but instead they were interested in the things that pass away. They should have been talking about heaven. They should have been calling people to imagine, to imagine what life after this life is like. But they didn't. The second thing we learn about heaven from this text is it's not like here. There will be no earthly marriages. Now, from time to time, I've talked to individuals who are a little upset about that. 
They're in a wonderful marriage, a brilliant marriage. Let's suppose for a moment all of us are in a wonderful marriage, a brilliant marriage. It may not be true, but let's suppose that. The thing is still this. Marriage here on earth comes with some difficulties. Whenever you have two people together, there's always just a little bit of tension. There's no tension in heaven. Jesus goes out of his way to say there's no procreation in heaven. Because you never die, and one of many purposes in marriage is procreation, there's no need for marriage. And I think the highest reason is because the highest love on earth, other than our love for the Lord, is our love for our spouse. And yet in heaven, there's such perfect love all across the board. We will love all people with a much greater love. There's no need for the relationship of marriage. And so in heaven, there will be no marriage. The third thing we see from this text is, well, heaven is not at all like here. That's the point that Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 2. John makes it as well. Let me read from Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That is in heaven. God will be right there physically. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In heaven, death and mourning and sorrow and sickness, they will not be there. Sometimes we, we think of loved ones who know Christ, who have gone ahead. And we rightly grieve for ourselves, but we never grieve for them. We never grieve for them. They're in a place without mourning, without sorrow, without sickness, without death. They're in a place not made with human hands. They're in the place that God created for them. It's not like here. It is so beyond our imagination. We might say earth is good, but tainted. Heaven is perfect, and it is untainted. The fourth thing we learn from the text is that Jesus adamant believes in the supernatural. Remember, he's talking to the Sadducees. The Sadducees have only accepted five books of Scripture, and they have nothing to do with the supernatural. They don't believe in life after the grave. They don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus goes to them, and he says, if you had not been chasing after the things on earth, if you had not wasted your life going after things that perish, but you had spent your time in the Word of God, even if you had only accepted five books of Scripture, you would know, even from those five books, in life after death. It's a brilliant argument. It's hard to, to understand. If you read the text, you might have said, huh, I don't really know what, what Jesus is getting at. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He goes to the burning bush. You remember the event. Moses comes up to a bush that is on fire and is not consumed. And God says, Moses, take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. That's the event. And in that event, we read that the God of Abraham is God. The God of Isaac is God. And the God of Jacob is God. But in the Hebrew text, it's much more vivid. It's saying the God of Abraham is Abraham's God 
and still is his God. The God of Isaac is his God and still is his God. The God of Jacob is his God and still is his God. In other words, these three amigos are dead. They've changed location. They have a new address. They live on Gold Street. They're up in heaven. And Jesus says, if you hadn't wasted your life pursuing things that perish, and you had been doing what I called you to do and studying my word and teaching my word to others, if you had done that, you would have known even from the first five books that there is life after death. For the believer, there's life eternal in heaven. For the unbeliever, there's life eternal in hell. There is eternal life for all people. God's word is inexhaustible. And we need to spend a lifetime studying. Who would pick up that grammatical argument? I wouldn't. But Jesus, of course, did. As I thought about this, I thought of a couple of my friends. Uh, we decided we were going to meet a couple times a month and we would study the epistle to the Ephesians. And we would uh, have breakfast and uh, I would facilitate a little discussion on the book of Ephesians. So one of my buddies, before the first time of which I'm facilitating, he reads through the six chapters of Ephesians like four or five times. Then he borrows one of my commentaries, 300 pages by a seminary prof and reads it, borrows a second commentary on the same book of Ephesians and reads it. And I'm the guy who's supposed to be facilitating. May his tribe increase. He wants to know what Scripture says. We need to take Scripture seriously. That's what the Sadducees did not. They chased after things that would perish, and they forgot to invest in eternity. And they didn't know God's Word, and they didn't know God. Paul talks about the difficulty of understanding Scripture here and how much more we will understand God there, but just because it's difficult, we don't give up. We still pursue God and his word. Let me read 1 Corinthians 13, 9 to 12. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That is, we don't know this word exhaustively. But when the perfect comes, I take that to be Jesus returning, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. That is, when I'm not really in the word, that's what I'm like a child. When I become a man, I gave up childish things. When I really get in the word, I start to understand God. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when we get to heaven face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You and I look forward to the day, we imagine the day when God calls us from this life into eternity with the Lord. It was Pastor D.L. Moody who wrote these words. D.L. Moody is now in heaven. He said, a city without pain, a city without sorrow, without sickness, without death. There is no darkness there. The Lamb is the light thereof. It needs no sun. It needs no moon. The paradise of Eden was as nothing compared with this one. The tempter came into Eden in triumph. But in that city, nothing that defiles shall ever enter. There will be no tempter there. 
Think of a place where temptation cannot come. Think of a place where we will be free from sin, where pollution cannot enter, and where the righteous shall reign forever. Think of a city that is not built with hands, where the buildings do not grow old with time. A city whose inhabitants no census has numbered except the book of life, which is a heavenly directory. Think of a city through whose streets run no tide of business, where no nodding hearses creep slowly with their burden to the tomb. A city without griefs or graves, without sins or sorrows, without marriages or mournings, without births or burials. A city which glories in having Jesus for king, angels for guards, and whose citizens are saints. The only way to get to that city is to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Romans 10, 9, and 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or declared righteous, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Make sure today that you, I, we know Jesus Christ. And if we know Christ, may we not be like the Sadducees, wasting our life after pursuits that perish. Let's pursue Christ. What doesn't perish? Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you that your son interacted with the Sadducees and that that was recorded for us and given to us that we might know something more about heaven. We thank you, Father, that what we know is magnificent. And we know that if we believe in Jesus as Savior, when you call us from this earth, we face the last enemy death instantaneously as then we pass from this life into eternity. And to be absent from the body is indeed to be present with the Lord. Thank you for this hope, this assurance, this confidence that you give us through your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.